0: Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in south-central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. This week's show is the final discussion of the three-part series called The Housing Continuum, Building a Vibrant Community, presented by Alaska Common Ground. The series wrapped up with speakers presenting on what's already happening and what's still needed to address issues with housing in Anchorage. This program was recorded at the Anchorage Museum on April 1st. We'll begin with moderator Tanya Eiden.
1: Thank you very much, everybody, for being here. Um, I'll kind of frame the discussion a little bit just in that uh, this is the third in a series of three events that the Alaska Common Ground has hosted. Uh, the first event really kind of framed up our housing supply and you know kind of discussed our aging housing stock some of the challenges that people face uh, in finding affordable housing in our community Um, one interesting tidbit that sticks out to me from that presentation is just to be able to afford a a modest one-bedroom apartment in this town you need to make $17 an hour Um, so we discussed topics such as that at the first housing forum and then the second housing forum Uh, really talked about kind of barriers to new development and why aren't we getting the housing uh, stock that we'd like to see in our community and so um, really looked at kind of some of the numbers and some of the challenges to development in our community and um, I'm super honored that I get to host this one because it's all about solutions So tonight's guests are really going to talk about some of the great things that are happening in our community to ensure that we have a vibrant um, robust community that supports all different ages and economic brackets and being able to have the housing that they need to live successful lives and have full access to the economic and social fabric of our community. So um, with that, I think I'll just introduce our first speaker, who's going to be Chris Schutte. Um, Chris is the Director of Community and Economic Development at our beautiful
2: city. What I'd like to go over today is a brief overview of some of the best practices that we have looked at from across the country uh, that help shape uh, forward-thinking housing policies, uh, how they're being implemented or planned to be implemented here in Anchorage, and then queue up some of the uh, future attractions that you can stay tuned for. Uh, To start with, one of the first things that uh, I'd like to cover is known as the Accessory Dwelling Unit. This is a tool that a lot of communities have used to not only help boost housing supply, but also to help uh, decrease housing costs. Um, Accessory Dwelling Units uh, have a lot of other names, granny flats, mother-in-law apartments, uh, alleyway houses if you're Canadian. Um, I prefer ADUs just because it sounds nice and generic and clinical. Um, And it's a big topic across the country. We looked uh, in cities uh, both similar in size and similar in geography, uh, as well as uh, uh, some of the bigger cities as well. So from Boise to St. Paul to Minneapolis to Tacoma to Bend, we had great stories of success that we could build and model our, our changes on. Um, This is a a photo taken in Minneapolis, St. Paul, a city that experiences winter in much the same way we do, although uh, they treat it a little bit differently than we do, and I'm envious of that. But uh, this is an example of an accessory dwelling unit in someone's backyard. Here in Anchorage, uh, we worked with the community and with the Anchorage Assembly uh, to pass an ordinance that allows accessory dwelling units uh, on all residential property types now, uh, across the bowl, this opens up the opportunity for developing an accessory dwelling unit to more and more individuals, whether that's detached, as this picture depicts, uh, or attached, as some people have proposed doing. Um, the, uh, the ordinance uh, after, after taking effect in 2018, um, we saw a massive rush of about four or five units within the first couple days after this passed. Um, I believe the dust is still settling on how successful this will be but the um, the initial reaction is that it has really opened a lot of people's eyes about the opportunities that their land presents for adding additional units and this is one tool that now allows that to happen. Um, Moving on to the next topic, Um, another uh, tool in the toolbox of cities across the country is something known as the unit lot or small lot subdivision. This is an interesting, uh, well, semi-interesting if you're a city nerd like I am, um, tool that allows you to treat a, uh, an individual residential p- uh, property, uh, you're able to subdivide it into smaller individual properties for uh, ownership, um, but retain a lot of the zoning and entitlement requirements that, that stick with the larger parcel. And, and what that means is in this community and in a lot of communities across the country, You've got rules about what you can build and where you can build and how much you can build depending on the zoning laws of a given area. So uh, take for example how far away from the street your house can be or how close to your neighbor your house can be or how tall your house can be. Um, The unit lot subdivision is an interesting uh, way to to, um, add density or add additional housing units on a parent lot, an individual lot where all of those rules apply but they apply to the entire development instead of on an individual unit basis. And it's been something that's uh, in communities that face a lot stronger housing pressures than we do, like Los Angeles and Seattle, and of course the beach communities up and down the coast. Uh, Even even Spokane uh, and Boise are experiencing this. They're looking at it as a way to help uh, reduce development costs, increase density, but also try to protect some of the neighborhood characteristics in Seattle which is feeling a lot of pressure in a lot of neighborhoods. Um, this is an example from uh, earlier this fall of what used to be a two-story single-family home uh, that is now a six-unit unit lot subdivision. So each of those, this is not a condo development, each of those technically sits on its own parcel of land. So when people buy into these unit lots or these homes, they're buying into the home and the, and the land beneath it. Here in Anchorage, uh, we worked in late 2017 to develop our own ex- uh, unit lot subdivision ordinance. Uh, one of the first projects to take advantage of that is in the background here. This is a project called Bootleggers. Uh, it's down in Bootleggers Cove, obviously. Um, the diagram you see in the top right, that's the, that is the is uh, the plat for it. And as you can see, they have taken what is kind of an arrow-shaped uh, parcel and they have divvied it up into six eight, sorry, eight different uh, individual pieces. Each, in, uh, each one of those is an individual property. And all of those units uh, are, will be constructed. Now, they do connect. They're touching each other. But the, the uh, zoning rules of the master lot apply to the entire development. And It's been an interesting tool to get uh, to jumpstart some increased density in our community. One of the other tools that we've seen used across this country is targeted incentive programs uh, and they take many different shapes, many different forms um, and they of course happen in cities big and small, whether we're talking about uh, Boise, Idaho, uh, Missoula, Montana, uh, and of course the, the model that we followed most uh, closely, the Multifamily Tax Exemption Program of Washington State, which is actually implemented in many of its cities uh, in different forms. But at the, at the basis of it, uh, it is a tool designed to increase the, the residential construction and the density of particular targeted areas. And in Washington, they call them, uh, well, they call them targeted areas. It's not a very original name, but uh, these are parts of their community where they are driving this kind of investment, where they really are trying to boost the population density of a given area. Uh, We worked on a similar ordinance here in Anchorage passed uh, just last month. Um, And this one focuses our incentivization tool on the central business district or downtown Anchorage. Uh, and it's a residential-only property tax exemption uh, with a minimum threshold of the number of units that are needed to be produced in order to qualify. Um, but other than that, broad, pretty broad and open. Um, it does allow mixed-use development. In fact, I think it helps encourage it. Um, by offsetting the property taxes that would be owed on any of the residential improvements on the property. So in this hypothetical building that I'm using in my example, uh, we'll imagine that everything on the ground floor is a hip coffee shop where all the millennials go, and everything above it are the cool apartments where they all live. Uh, Using the tax incentive here in Anchorage, uh, we would not exempt the commercial portions of that building from taxation, nor would we exempt the land value, but all of the residential improvements uh, above would be eligible for that 12-year tax abatement. Um, we, we focused on downtown first because downtown Anchorage has not seen residential construction of any magnitude uh, in nearly 20 years, and one of the one of the first projects to, uh, to come into downtown Anchorage as a residential development. You're gonna hear more about in a little bit from, from Robin. Uh, they actually didn't take advantage of this tax exemption because they started their project long before this exemption was available. But uh, we're hoping to encourage more investment like that, truly mixed-use structures that bring a needed population base back to downtown Anchorage and has the, the, uh, the effect of helping to boost the, uh, the downtown economy. One other tool, and I'm keeping a close eye on this clock because I know I only have 12 minutes. Uh, One other tool that uh, we're looking to expand is the use of what's generically known as public-private partnerships. As the name implies, and at least in the way that we use it generically, it's just an arrangement between public and private entities where the public uh, brings something to the table to help the private entity achieve their development goals uh, and, and the outcome being the production of residential housing. Again, public-private partnerships are used across the country in big and small projects, whether it's something like extending water and sewer lines to a, to a development area, um, something as small as partnering on amenities for development projects. They happen across the country, and it's one that, that uh, we are certainly pursuing. You'll hear more about that from Robin. I wanted to highlight one really small and oftentimes overlooked public-private partnership that we do. And uh, it's hard to tell from this image, but these are some uh, construction workers paving an alley. Uh, Here in Anchorage, there are a number of unimproved alleyways. If you uh, live in one of the older neighborhoods, you might actually have one in your backyard. Uh, Some of these are just dirt roads. Others are actually paved. But uh, a particular nuance of our zoning code and of many zoning codes across the country is that as new development comes into these areas that have unimproved alleyways, the responsibility of upgrading that portion of the alley, for example, will fall to the private developer. What this means is that it's an extra cost for, uh, for residential development that they may not have uh, anticipated, for starters. Uh, But it also creates a kind of a maintenance nightmare from our perspective where you have these weird islands of improvement and they're buttressed on either side by unimproved alleys. We've looked at a way of participating in these alley paving programs Um, for the past two years. We've actually included about $200,000 in our annual bond ask that goes into this alley improvement fund. And those projects that we do every year, they're split be- about 50-50 between true maintenance needs, uh, alleys that need to need work because of drainage issues, and then the other half are, are community development projects. And we've got uh, a couple of those queued up this summer, the biggest of which is partnering with Cookland Housing on an alley repaving project in Spinard that's going to benefit a fourplex they're under construction with. Looking ahead, we've got some future opportunities in the community. Um, one is out on the street right now, if you will. It's at the Planning and Zoning Commission, and we'll come forward to the Anchorage Assembly soon. And this is, uh, we're calling it compatible scale infill housing, which is a much sexier name than what I would have come up with. Uh, it's, in essence, it's trying to update some of our residential zoning codes to allow greater flexibi- flexibility and increased density in our R two residential districts. Um, This is just a diagram showing the continuum of housing types, and where we're kind of focused is right right in the middle uh, on some of the more compact uh, residential, mixed residential low low density work. In addition, we've got future opportunities with things known as uh, reinvestment focus areas, the RFAs. Reinvestment focus areas are implementation of our 2040 land use plan, and it is a uh, incentive and tool designed to help transform uh, underdeveloped or disincentivized areas into um, new uh, residentially based uh, development zones. The municipality is interested in being a partner in that work and that's why I'm highlighting these. This is one that we talk about a lot called the Chugach Way RFA, it's in the heart of Spenard. Uh, The Spenard, Minnesota corner is over on the bottom left of that screen Arctic Boulevard is the boundary on the top. Uh, We're looking at that because there's a lot of public infrastructure need for the area that will help support the private residential development down the road. Another one that we've uh, been looking at, we call the Midtown RFA. This is around Arctic Benson Park, which is unfortunately uh, now a notorious park. Uh, We're thinking that part of the revitalization effort of that park will include a reinvestment focus area that supports the uh, multifamily housing that surrounds it currently. And then looking ahead and queuing up, my partner and the next speaker is uh, taking advantage or implementing uh, one of the recommendations of the 2012 McDowell Housing Study, which said uh, pretty pretty bluntly, you don't have enough places to build houses, so you better find a way to free up some land. And that's something that we've uh, focused on over the past three and a half years, and Robin will tell you all about it.
1: Thanks, Chris. He did my job for me, which is to introduce Robin Ward, who's our chief housing officer at the Municipality
3: of Anchorage.
4: Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Ward, and uh, I am passionate about housing. Anybody who knows me knows I'm passionate about housing. I've been in the business for 45 years. Yes, 45 years. And I have the best job in the world because I get to focus on housing at the municipality, with partners like Chris and a mayor like we have. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about land. One of the barriers uh, in Anchorage is the lack of developable land in the right location that's either zoned properly or can be zoned properly that's attractive to buyers. So one of our objects, one of the solutions to our barriers is to try and find land that can be freed up or facilitate land for development. So one way that we um, facilitate land is sometimes by acquisition. This is one of our projects. Um, Most of you know this uh, nine-acre piece of property by Lusak Library, surrounded on two sides by Cuddy Park, north of Lowe's. Um, This was the former National Archives property. The building did not get uh, built, and it literally took an act of Congress to designate the MOA as the sole purchaser, we were able to purchase this property. We used an interfund loan process where we borrowed money from ourselves, the city, and then we purchased this, and we're in the process right now of entitling it. So you're going to see lots of public interaction um, to determine. Um, what this should look like, it's currently zoned as an R3. We are preparing to rezone it to an R4A, which is one of our new dense uh, housing but mixed use zoning districts. Um, we haven't tried it very much yet, but this is going to be one of the first ones. This is a pivotal piece of property right in the middle of Midtown. So this would um, allow mixed use with some neighborhood retail and commercial along with different types and market ranges of housing. So you'll see more of this coming up as we go through the entitlement process and then go on to the assembly for approval. It will then go out for an RFP for development. It is our intention to have this entitled and guide development, but sell it to the private uh, sector with a development agreement, again, to guide the development, but we wouldn't do the development ourselves. Another way that we are looking at making land available is through land exchanges. We are currently working with the state of Alaska on a parcel downtown. We call it Block 102. It's one of the original blocks um, you would know it as uh, right across from the park strip um, on the corner are two privately owned parcels, Picaro and the birthing center. The rest of the block is actually owned by the state of Alaska and is used for parking for um, the employees at the Atwood um, building Uh, right now Alaska housing holds the title to the property so we're working with Alaska housing and state of Alaska to exchange this for other properties that the municipality may have that would be of interest to the state of Alaska but again eventually we would hope to be able to acquire or facilitate the acquisition and uh, re-entitle this for something like mixed use downtown Another way that we make land available is to dispose of some of our own vacant municipal land. The municipality has the Heritage Land Bank which holds an inventory of all of the municipal land that is vacant right now holds it for future development, sale or use by the municipality. This is a parcel that we um, sold by a sealed competitive bid last, uh, it was about a year and a half ago. It since has been, um, c- it c- has come back in now as a subdivision plat in Eagle River, a large lot subdivision plat, and will become eleven home sites uh, when it is completed and the houses begin to be constructed. We redevelop some of our old sites. This is the former Native Hospital site on Ingra and Third. This site has just gone through almost a year of uh, master planning to determine what is the best model to use for redevelopment of this site. Currently, it is zoned public lands and institutions. We would um, now start looking at rezoning that to a downtown district, um, something that would be compatible, again, with a mixture of housing, um, mixed use, you'll see this is one of the two preferred alternatives, two were actually determined, and this one would have recreation, it would have uh, commercial, it would have residential, and one of the things that we're very cognizant of, this also has what we call a remembrance area for the former Native hospital site. We're very cognizant of the culture, Many of our Alaskans were born and died at that hospital, so there is is a lot of culture uh, that we want to make sure gets remembered in the development of this site. So in all of the alternatives, there is a site set aside for a memorial area. We have a sister agency also. The Anchorage Community Development Authority also holds title to three vacant lots downtown on the corner of 8th and K. Um, You might know those today as where the mobile food trucks are downtown, but they are looking at developing this site. This is, again, a very pivotal site, um, and eventually, as the old um, Department of Health and Human Services building is redeveloped, this will be complementary to whatever happens there. We're assuming it will be senior housing. So... An RFP is out on the street right now for development. This would uh, most likely be some kind of a parking structure with probably housing or mixed use on top of that. So our sister agencies are looking through their inventories also to make land available wherever possible. Most of you know where this site is. This is our permit center. This is at Elmore and Tudor. This site has been designated in several plans as a town center. It's been undeveloped or underdeveloped for many years. So we have spent the last two years um, platting. It's now rezoned to B3. And we just received approval to relocate our ASD student transportation facility to across the street. Uh, that will be um, just south of the old APD headquarters, and that will free up almost 20 acres of very, very important um, property in an area that's at one of our major employment centers. So we're expecting not only to have our new health center, this will be the home of our new uh, Department of Health and Human Services um, building, which is a 40,000-square-feet, two-story building in the corner, along with um, probably medical office buildings. One of the things that this neighborhood has been asking for for many, many, many years is a grocery store. This is a grocery store desert. So again, because of the amount of um, beca- the employment, housing, Um, We're looking at not only a grocery store, but about 200 units of housing, along with medical office and our new DHHS. So you will see this redevelopment over the next four or five years, and and it will be very, very important to this neighborhood. One uh, project that I did want to talk to you a little bit about is Elizabeth Place. Now, we have tools downtown. This is the one that that, uh, Chris was talking about. They may not be um, eligible for our tax abatement, but we used other tools to help them, some we'd never used before. Elizabeth Place sits on four original town site lots. They're very narrow lots. There's four of them. The Heritage Land Bank owned three of those lots, and we were able to get a federal reverter clause removed, again, by... Uh, Act of Congress, and we took those lots. They'd been public parking for a long time and put them out for an RFP. Cook Inlet Housing Authority was our successful proposer on this project. Now, this is affordable housing mixed use, so the lower level is all commercial and retail, and then there are about 60 um, affordable apartment units above that some one, some two-bedroom, and in order to make this pencil, affordable housing is extremely difficult to make pencil, and as a part of the participation, not only on municipal property, we allowed Cook Inlet to um, propose a seller carry paper The city's never taken a note and deed of trust back on a piece of property like this. So we took a note and deed of trust for 42 years for the assessed value in 2017. And they will pay payments based on their surplus operating expenses until it's paid for but it gave them the ability to acquire the property and keep the actual purchase price to a point where they could afford to actually construct that. On top of that, the fourth lot was privately owned and we helped them apply for um, community um, development block grant funds in order to acquire that fourth lot. So now they have four lots. If you drive past, they are now under construction. So it's very exciting to see. This is a uh, one of our public-private partnerships that we're very proud of. And again, um, you know, we're looking at every opportunity. We have gone through all of the inventory at the Municipality of Anchorage to see if there's any residential properties that we can determine that surplus to municipal needs and make those available to the developers. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Robin. So now we're going to hear from Brian Butcher to my right, um, who is the CEO of Alaska Housing Finance Corporation.
5: We should have let me go first. So uh, the blandness of my PowerPoint wouldn't have stood out like it is. But uh, uh, hi, my name is Brian Butcher. Um, I'm the CEO executive director of the Alaska Housing Finance Corporation. Um, To tell you a little bit about Alaska Housing, some of you know us. Uh, from our mortgage activity, we have uh, about a quarter of the mortgage market in Alaska. About half of that's in Anchorage. Uh, specializing in first-time homebuyers, um, veterans, rural loans. Uh, we also run all the public housing for HUD. So we have about uh, 1,600 apartments. Most of them, it's statewide, but most of them are in Anchorage. Um, and we've got about 55 uh, apartment vouchers that we operate as well. And then we are involved in a lot of new construction that goes on, specifically affordable housing, senior housing, and that has to do with uh, grant funds that we receive as well as uh, low-income housing tax credits and some of the other federal programs that we operate. So we get to do a lot of uh, really interesting things. Um, Looking at HFC's role in assisting communities, I mentioned mortgages. Uh, We pay a dividend to the state of Alaska based on our net income. Over the last 25 years, we've paid a little over $2 billion, and so uh, most of that money, about two-thirds of that money historically, has gone towards Alaska housing uh, capital programs, senior housing, affordable housing, uh, homelessness uh, programs, uh, rural housing, and a number of different things. So the money we make, for the most part, goes right back into housing, and, and uh, we really appreciate governors and legislatures that have been... Uh, Willing to do that because it spends like general fund they could take it and it has been used to match Transportation and do all the other things government needs to do Um, But it's mostly been spent on housing Um, We do financing um, We do uh, rehabilitation. We have a rehabilitation program uh, As well as new construction Uh, we also um, Like I mentioned do a lot of affordable housing where we bring a lot of a Elizabeth place actually is a good example of taking a number of different grants, a number of you know, contributions from the municipality and working because to build affordable housing in Alaska as a whole, but in particular in uh, Anchorage is so expensive. I mean, we don't see a lot of multifamily uh, housing being built anyway in Anchorage. And so if you're gonna look to build it at an affordable level where a senior or an Alaskan with a disability or uh, you know somebody of a lower income is trying to get into it really doesn't pencil. It takes a lot of levels of financing and tax credits and grants to get that to work and and that's one real difference we see um, in Anchorage that you don't see as much in other, when we look at our uh, fellow housing finance agencies in other states, you see them Developing affordable housing and it just being a small niche in the greater number of multifamily housing that's being built. In Alaska and Anchorage specifically, we're a much larger percentage of what's being built, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. You hope the market takes care of things, you hope the market continues to develop multifamily housing, and uh, we haven't seen it due to the cost and a number of other factors that I'll touch on. We also give a lot of technical assistance. We're willing to, uh, we have a lot of expertise in our energy uh, and um, other areas. Uh, and we do a lot of research. We have a lot of data. So I want to encourage you, if you have any questions and you're working on something or you have any questions about uh, anything, to just reach out to us. Because more often than not, we're usually going to have some useful information. Uh, we might not have the solution that solves everything, but uh, you know, we do the best we can.
0: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on 91.1 FM, Alaska Public Media. Today's program is part three of The Housing Continuum, Building a Vibrant Community, presented by Alaska Common Ground. We continue with Brian Butcher, CEO of the Alaska Housing Finance Corporation.
5: Um, In terms of underutilized resources, Uh, You can see the Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines. They do uh, annual competitive grants, um, which is a good source of equity. We've seen six grants uh, in the last couple of years to three organizations to build multifamily and single-family development, but it's not something that's talked about very often. Um, There's the Capital Magnet Fund, which provides grants to qualified nonprofits, um, and uh, that's something that if you call us, we can give you more details on. Um, And it it can do a number of different things, from loan guarantees to risk-sharing loans, Um, And and that's underutilized uh, nationwide, but I think in Alaska as well. The New Market Tax Credit is another program that doesn't get utilized uh, very much um, nationally or in Alaska, where uh, it takes private uh, equity in to private capital into low-income communities to do more with. Uh, Covenant House is a good example of a project that was done through New Market Tax Credits. Um, We've got Opportunity Zones, and, and some of you might have heard Opportunity Zones where Um, You can get capital gains tax incentives if you build in certain opportunity zones, which are are generally looked at as um, um, lower income, more uh, challenged areas. And and you you can guess where they are in Anchorage. It's mostly in in Fairview, uh, Muldoon, uh, Government Hill, uh, Mountain View. And so there's incentives to to build in areas that don't see a lot of building. And again, that's a national program, uh, but the opportunity zones exist within the state of Alaska. Um talking about, this is my downer uh, slide, so hopefully I don't run out of time and I get to the, past the downer slide, but um, housing demand's increasing in the Matsu. and I think if you look specifically at Anchorage, and you know, if you'd have told me 10 or 12 years ago that the Matsu borough was one of the fastest growing communities in the US, and certainly the fastest in the state, I would have uh, never believed that a decade or so later, we would still be saying the same thing. But I think a large part of that has to do with its proximity to Anchorage, and that there's just not a lot of buildable land that's easy to build on in Anchorage. And as a result, it's it's, uh, cheaper to get land out there, it's cheaper to develop out there, and year in and year out, we're continuing to see more development going on out in the Mat-Su. So Anchorage actually has a competition for a lot of this. Um, As I've mentioned earlier, economics aren't favorable um, due to the cost of land, due to the cost of labor, the cost of materials. It's expensive to build up here. It's expensive to develop up here and we're seeing very little. We're not keeping up with the demand, and it was worse when we saw our population increasing. It's plateaued a little bit, which isn't a good thing for Anchorage, but in terms of the pressure on the housing market, it's not a bad thing. Uh, and the easy funding is gone. Uh, working something out on the back of an envelope and going in and, and going into your bank and doing a lot of spec building, a lot of those things that we saw 25 years ago, 35 years ago, it's much more difficult now. It takes more layers of financing, and it's, cre- it's gonna take more creativity, I think. We're gonna to need to see more rehab of, of buildings like uh, hotels into, um, into apartments and, and things like that where you, you have to think more creatively because the build a, or to buy a blank piece of land and build from it is just so much more difficult than it used to be with a lot of the land that is available being uh, wetlands or certain challenges that we didn't see you know, 30 years ago when there was plenty of uh, buildable land. Um, taking a look at some of the innovations and and we've seen actually quite a a jump in the last five years from both juno and fairbanks in some of the interesting things they're doing Um, you can see uh, mentioning what chris had brought up with the accessible dwelling units they have uh, developed a fund of five hundred thousand dollars in juno that uh, you can get up to six thousand dollars a unit of a grant if you're willing to develop an adu so juno is actually willing to financially incentivize people to build on their lots and to, to uh, help with the, den- with the density of housing in Juneau, trying to help put a, piece of, uh, uh, put, a develop- put a unit wherever they can. They've also developed an affordable housing fund. Uh, they've put a 1% addition to their sales tax over five years, and that's going into a fund that is also going to be used for different incentives to build affordable housing, and they're still in the process of determining what that is. They have it in place, they have the funds coming in, they just haven't determined how exactly that's gonna be spent. Um, and then we're seeing uh city and borough of Juneau is the largest landholder, private landholder or landholder of developable land in the in the Juneau area. And so we're seeing them actually getting involved in making available land to be built on. And that's something that we've we've had. I couldn't even tell you how many mayors I've met with that have talked about the housing challenges. And we've said, well, does the city still own more land than anybody? And they say, yeah. And then we say, well, you know, what do you want us to tell you? Make the the land available to the developers, to the home builders. And so they are starting to do that. They're not doing it in necessarily the most user-friendly way, in my opinion, but it it is getting done. And if they have too many challenges to it, I think you're going to see it change probably for the better. Um, Looking at Fairbanks, uh, they have developed a housing task force, and that's something that we participate in. Uh, It's come out of a larger effort to make sure they have enough housing for the F-35s coming into IELTS. They're expecting to need 400 to 800 units of housing. And so we've seen over 100 units built in the last year in the Fairbanks-North Pole area. We think we're going to see another 100 units. I mean, I think Fairbanks is passing Anchorage even in the building of new units, even though it's a much smaller uh, population-wise than Anchorage is. So they really seem to be uh, putting together developer agreements where they can work together between the borough and a developer to try to expedite, uh, have one um, permit, over a number of, you know, if they're building a number of units, they have one permit, they check it through once and they don't have to go through it over and over again. So they're really working with developers up there to try to increase the amount of uh, housing available. Um, In other communities, we are seeing uh, everything from infrastructure assistance, where a community is going to want to help with infrastructure, to land, where a community is trying to make land available. It really, to me, seems to have to do with how much of a, of an issue to how high of a priority it is to a community because Juno's the best example, and and Dick's going to talk about uh, supportive housing. But Juno's gone above and beyond with that too, where they've said we need to help get the chronically homeless off the streets. We're willing to put uh, our own money in, and when they do put their own money in, and they go through our scoring process to get housing tax credits or other grants, they score much higher because they're contributing a lot more. So they figured out how the system works and they figured out as a community that they're willing to do what they need to do to then get those things taken care of. Um, And lastly, I'd like to mention a couple of things. The Alaska Corporation for Affordable Housing is a corporation that we got developed by state law um, about seven years ago. And it gives AHFC um, an opportunity to pair with for-profit developers, and it gives us a lot more flexibility than we traditionally have as our public agency to do things a little bit more creatively. And so you might, uh, if you look at the Glen Square Mall, where Bass Pro Shop is in Mountain View, there's new housing of just a few years ago kind of above it uh, on, the, on the hill there. Uh, that was done through our corporation. 88 units were built there. Uh, we were able to do it in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do it if the corporation didn't exist. So that's also an area that we're working to try to focus on where the need is, focus on where we can help, and then work to to get more units built uh, in Alaska as a whole. But we started in Anchorage because we figured if we could get it to work in Anchorage, we could probably get it to work other places. And so we're still looking in Anchorage, but we're also going to look to uh, go beyond that as well. And then lastly, the Cold Climate Housing Research Center uh, in Fairbanks that we work with that does a lot of great work. And I, I don't have anything specific to discuss with that just that a lot of the innovations and a lot of making things more energy efficient and more cost effective in Anchorage and in the state of Alaska comes with a lot of the research that they're doing there. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Brian. Um, So next we're going to hear from John Weddleton from the Anchorage Assembly. Thanks, John.
6: Uh, So hello, everyone. Um, There's a lot of good plans right there. I'm going to talk about one of the things that kind of throws a wrench into the whole system. And for decades before I got on the assembly, I was uh, described myself as a thorn in the side of anyone whose email address ends in muni.org. And now that I've got one, I feel very conflicted sometimes. So where does the average citizen fit in all this stuff? Well people are mostly just very busy and run around their lives. They got kids and they got work and things like that. And then they they find out that something's happening in the neighborhood and they worry. And why do they worry? Well, since I have 12 minutes, let's talk about the history of America. So here you see top left, this is where we all begin, right? It's just glorious, it's just trees and and, and, and an open field. and, And then there's a train and we just see this development. So you can see in this, this is very typical of how we develop our country. And we end up very often like that, right? Who doesn't want that? Okay, so everybody just kind of doing their thing. You know, utilities are just trying to run things cheap and everybody trying to um, use their own property efficiently. You can end up in a place that no one ever wants to be. So when people come in with development plans, like these plans that we've heard about, why would anyone get nervous? Because we end up like this, and we do this in Anchorage. You can see big seas of parking, um, very unattractive buildings. that could be built next to your house. Um, you know, people walking in the streets because we don't build sidewalks. You can see you got a log cabin next to this new industrial building. We build houses for cars and there's space up above where the drivers can live. And uh, then just some really weird stuff. And you have another case, we have a big storage thing just completely shadows this poor apartment building. And, And even in the lower right, and funny, I think this is across from Pete's house, but you have a beautiful house here, but it's twice as tall as the houses next to it. And it just doesn't feel quite right in the neighborhood. So people worry about this stuff. So when we have these development plans, people are nervous and you know if you say we're the government we have these great plans we're here to help it's it's not everyone is happy about that so this is one sign of that how do we say hello something's going on in your neighborhood we put up one of these signs public hearing who doesn't want to go to a public hearing right you're getting pretty excited here what's it about well this property proposed secret code okay but below it is a phone number and there often is someone there who can answer your questions But you go to muni.org and you search for this, you're not going to find anything. I'm sorry. So all you know is something's going on, and you don't know what. And this sign could be for a very minor variance, you know, some neighbor's driveway is three inches off of where it's supposed to be, or it could be in your neighborhood we are putting, you know, a 50-unit apartment building. Okay, you don't really know from this stuff, and it makes people very nervous. Now the one on uh, your right is actually was a superior version here, and this came from Robin Ward, who used the sign and put lots of information on there in small print, so it was actually pretty cool. If if you could find it, was kind of on the ground, very low, but I don't think that was her fault. So is a public welcome to make decisions? Not so much. But if you do get involved and you see that sign you want to get, all you have to do is read the instructions. And here's an example of them, but this is just one page in this, okay? It's really hard to read this stuff. Our code, that's just our land use code. So, but it's, you know, we kind of do what we do and people read that and try to make what they can of it. And if they throw up their hands and give up, that would be a normal person. But then when you've read that code, then you have to make sure whatever's going on is fits into the relevant plans. This is just a few of them, okay, because I don't have the complete collection. But just read these and make sure, you know, if you're nervous about something, does it fit in the plan? No sweat. And then go to lots of meetings, okay? So you've got, uh, here's a transportation meeting. On the top right is um, community councils. Now, I recommend everyone get involved with at least one community council. I've been a member of at least a dozen of them. And... Uh, You know, it's kind of your grassroots way of getting involved, it's your neighborhood. And there's usually someone there who has read parts of Title 21, and maybe a few of those plans, and they go to a lot of meetings, and you can kind of get some information. Um, But if you are not connected with community council, you go to communitycouncils.org, and at least get on their email list. And if you see one of those blue signs, or, I just want to know what's going on you'll get their emails and and learn a bit um, if you really get involved and there's a project like some of these things that you've seen it'll end up in front of the planning and zoning commission and that's this lower left thing and you go in there and there's seven people up there you know deciding how things will work and you can line up and comment on things for three minutes um, and then if you're really lucky you get to see us at the anchor assembly so it's quite a process to get involved. But one common denominator, except for the assembly and PNC, are these cookies. Almost every meeting you go to will have those cookies. So if you like those, I think this is a hobby for you. So I wanna talk about just a couple of projects and it's not um, 100% about housing, but just the way some of these things can go. No, so we had one recently a rezone up uh, up on the hillside, fairly high up. Um, it's called the Lewis and Clark subdivision. It's up on Upper DeArmond Road. It's just a beautiful piece of property, south facing, and it was zoned R8 when the, the developers bought it. And they thought, well, well, we try this, we get more units if we do as R6. The you know, R8s four four acre lots, R6 is one acre lot. You get a lot more units. Um, and the neighbors did not like that. Their combination of R6 and other stuff, they don't want much going on down here. So they got very smart. This is a lot of smart neighbors up there. They had a really great attorney who worked on it. And they fought this, and they brought it to the Planning Commission. And Planning Commission said, no, R6 won't work there. So they won. Well, the developers brought it. They appealed that decision to the assembly. And the assembly, instead of saying, saying no, we're going to be with the planning commission, we remanded it to the planning commission. So a planning commission gets in and They're not quite sure what to do with this. We already said no. But the neighbors were on, involved with this. So they fought it again and, and again won at the planning commission. But overlapping with that, the developers went, well, shoot. What else can we do here? Maybe we can do R8 and we do what's called a conservation subdivision. So they got this plat for, um, oh, I don't know. what, How many was that, Chris? 30 units, something like 35, something on that order. Um, so a little bit more than they could do with R8, way less than with R6. And it actually looked like a real win for the neighborhood. I thought, way to go. And uh, But they fought it. They appealed it. So while that's working through its appeal, and all this takes years, so that was about a year, they thought, well, let's look at R10. Okay, so they went forward with an R10 rezone. So this is a neighborhood that's been through so much, they know how this works amazingly well, and they fought this R10 rezone, um, but we did just—we passed that just a couple weeks ago and approved it. it. went through, the planning commission said yes, and the assembly said, yeah, this works. And, but they had a cap on the number of lots they could put on there, so it actually is very close to what it would have been if it had been left R8, but this took five years. huge amount of turmoil for these neighbors and for the developers you know all these rezones cost them tens of thousands of dollars it's hugely expensive so so there's a lot of um this is for just 80 acres okay so how are we going to develop more housing in this town here's one property and and actually if you look at this tree it was kind of interesting because if you'll notice it has layers of the signs so for all except that last r10 rezone this poor tree has suffered staples for our signs and, and you can see one thing that neighbors did, every mailbox all the way up upper de Armin and around the corner had these no, originally it was R6, and then they flipped them around and did R10 as you went up there. And um, I voted for the rezone, the neighbors weren't happy, so I thought I might go up there and see no John Weddleton, but that, they have not done that, so they're kind. So anyway, you can see one of the challenges just doing a fairly basic rezone to develop housing that we can use. Um, Here's another one, and this is not really about housing, but it it emphasizes a a couple other things is the Spinard Road Rebuild, and this actually started, there was a big study done in 1986 that kind of looked at it, what do we do with this road? Okay, Um, I got involved in about 2000, and this chronology is kind of rough, it's all I could remember, but I think there's some other committees in there. I was involved with four committees and finally gave up, and there was a fifth one without me that succeeded, so there may be a lesson there. but it was um you know basically to take this four-lane road that was very dusty and bland and do something to give it so people could walk on it could bike on it better would basically be a better shopping area and they came up oh let's do a road diet this is not a new concept but it was fought by by some neighbors okay who said no anything less than four is going to choke off business and kill it so they formed this business north star business association which was an open business to anyone who owned a business as long as you agreed that Anything less than four lanes would kill business. Um, so they kind of co-opted the notion that business supports business opposes this project. Um, so I didn't think that was true. I own a business there, and I thought, well, no, we really like this project. It would be a better shopping environment if we could do something, bigger sidewalks, bike lanes, and make it a nice place to be. So we formed a Spinard Chamber of Commerce. And Annie was invited to that. In fact, it's free. So we got a lot of people joining very quickly. And we showed a huge amount of support for changing this road project. And and one thing we did is it was known as a three-lane project, go from four to three lanes. So people are going, you're going to choke it off and kill business if you take away a lane. But it's never really a three-lane project. It's a three and four at the intersections. It widens out. So we rephrased it as a three and four-lane combination. And it was amazing how just that rephrasing made people more open to to this project. so it went through a variety of, of um, committees, but I think the lesson in this one is, uh, is persistence. And basically the opposition gets worn down, which is a good thing if you support a project, but if you don't, it's a bad thing. But it was decades constantly over and over and over again. And it was also, uh, I think we got to a good place partly because a core group of people learned how to work with the city to make it work pretty well. Um, You can barely see on the bottom, but one of the main opponents um, wrote me a note recently and said, you know, Spinard Road's not so bad. Hell has frozen over. So what is the average person is a fighting chance? So we have done a couple things. And one, you can see in that corner are these new public hearing signs. And I would thank Chris Schutte and his staff for these things, which give you more information kind of tell you that'll be a subdivision, okay? That'll be if it's an alcohol license or bar or something. Um, This would be for rezone, okay, these are greatly feared. So at least you know a little bit more. There's more room and they'll put more information on there. So that's kind of your invitation has gotten nicer. There's more information on muni.org. And we are working on one of the things in that rezone is a rezone is just a rezone, but neighbors wanna know so much more. They wanna know how many lots, where are you gonna put them, where the house is gonna be, what color will they be, how many cars will they have, where the streets gonna go? And a rezone doesn't tell you that. And people talk past each other. So we're working on a handout that will train people to understand more what they should expect in this process. Also community council training, which has been a problem for my 20 years involved. We also have assembly community, and economic development meetings frequently that deals with a lot of these issues, and I think that helps. But mostly, what it all starts with is fear, and people fear our development, so they push back. Their initial thing is a push back. And if we build well, then I think we'll see less of that pushback. And I think we do build well, and people have good examples. And one is Spinard Road. You can see, it was done so well. People don't look at Arctic, they look at Spinard. And now people on Fireweed are saying, well, how come not us? So if we do a good job, we'll have less resistance. <laughs>
3: Hi, I'm Dick Montsager. So the last um, four speakers have talked about development and housing and how do we get more of it? Well, what happens if you can't afford any of it? And what are we gonna do to develop this as a more livable city? So I, get the, I guess I didn't realize really when I got here tonight that I get the cleanup time to talk about, um, okay, so the people on the margins, how do we help them find their way into housing in the way other people are? So first, very quickly, just to make a couple comments at the beginning about what gets somebody in a place where they don't have a home. It's not because they want to be there, generally speaking. It's all of this stuff. Um, any combination, many people that end up on the streets have some combination of some of these. And you notice that I put housing affordability in big print, and bigger than the rest. Because even if you work on all that other stuff, and you get a job, and you have a job, and you're, uh, and you're working 40 hours a week, you still can't afford an apartment. You need at least um, 60 hours of income and probably 80 hours of income to be able to afford an apartment. So as we do development and as we think about housing, we also have to think about, um, can it be a home for people on the margins? I stole this slide from the Urban Institute and it talks about families, but and I took it because I wanted to just frame up all the different things and services that can help people first avoid the streets and then get off the street. And um, the, you'll see that the Urban Institute did this slide and they use the word families, but you can put in single adults, you can put in women of uh, domestic violence, um, you can put in youth, and all the same principles apply, that people are individuals and it's not one solution fits everybody. Some people um, lost one person in a partnership, lost a job, and if you can support them for a little bit, they can make their way back to independence. Other people have complex disabilities and lost their homes some time ago, and for them, lots of support is needed. And they may even end up down in that lower right hand corner where they need support for the rest of their life. We as a community have a choice. We can continue to deal with police and EMS and the problems of camps, people in and out of shelter um, and people dying on the streets or we can assist people off the streets and support them in housing. Uh, Monica just sent me an article this morning from Denver, their permanent supportive housing project, 85% of the people are staying in housing and that's been pretty much replicated in many places in the country. So, kind of what do we need as a community if we wanna first prevent people being on the streets and then if they are on the streets, help them get off the street. First is prevention. Um, Somebody hears they've got a layoff notice or a couple, um, they're gonna go through a divorce and all of a sudden, um, one income instead of two. Uh, do we have a place where people can get supported and work through their choices they got available to them? Maybe they're in a two bedroom apartment and they can, but they can't afford a one bedroom apartment to help them make choices, help them make a first month down payment, those kinds of things. And this I would say is very weak in our armamentarium in this town right now. And the bang for the buck is way high here and we need to invest in this. Emergency shelter, this is kind of the classic picture of homelessness, and and we have multiple shelters in town. We have Brother Francis Shelter is the biggest one, Gospel Rescue Mission, Clare House for Women and Kids, Awake has a shelter for women with domestic violence, Covenant House has a shelter for youth. There's multiple types of shelter solutions, but we should never think of them as permanent housing. The goal for shelter is to be off the street, but then to move on into a housing solution. We don't have enough emergency shelter right now. I would dream of a day in the future where what we have is more than enough, but right now it isn't. And um, as we think about eradicating camps, we're on the verge now of summertime season. And the courts have kind of put down a marker about this, saying if you're going to eradicate camps, you've got to have shelter availability. We've got to make sure there's an equilibrium as we try and keep camps off the out of town. And our community goal that should be that we need less of it. So one of the things I think is, is, um, gives me hope, because when you think about homelessness, there can be a lot of depression and a lot of anger and a lot of feeling like we're just stuck and life's going to hell. Um, um, homelessness Leadership Council is an effort to bring business leaders into this. Um, several of us in this room just got back last week from Anchorage launching into a national learning collaborative called Built for Zero. Um, There's a federal award to Awake for Rapid rehousing for Domestic Violence. Um, Federal money into a youth homelessness demonstration project, which is really looking at supportive housing for some youth with disabilities, pay for success I've talked about, and then these other um, pilot projects and other um, interventions that are underway. The municipality mobile intervention team is a little bit more than a year and a half, right, John? Is that pushing two years now, maybe? But this is all pretty new to town, and so when people feel discouraged, I would argue. Let's give it a chance and I really think we're headed towards someplace different. There will always be a need for philanthropy. There will never be enough government money and um, this is another thing that gives me hope is all of these are different philanthropy investments that are being made in some part of this continuum at present and obviously private individuals, faith communities and businesses have always been investing and we need them to continue. But to bring projects to scale at high cost, whether it's the development projects, affordable housing developments and so on, I believe government is the only thing that has size and scale enough to really bring to the finish line um, projects. We should believe and we should act that the current status doesn't have to be our future, that that, um, we can be a community where home exists for people and that they can feel safe. I don't know that I need to say much about why I believe it's important. We've spent a lot of time in the public discussions and community councils at the assembly and so on about bullet number four, public health and safety. That's really important. People need to have a sense to have a livable city that the public spaces are available, that they feel safe in their own home. And everybody needs home, whether you're on the street or in your present home. So these are some of my just private Dick Monsarger opinions. One is AHFC services are needed. We need more. Um, I've argued with Brian a little bit about how do we convince the legislature that all of that profit should be reinvested back into housing. Um, We need housing creation all over the state. We need much more mental health service and substance abuse treatment. Medicaid is a key structural element for the services side for support, whether it's of both short-term rapid rehousing or longer permanent support. Medicaid is really a key structural support And I'm looking forward to see if we can really test in this social service world, pay for performance, which is a kind of a foreign concept in a lot of this. And this should be our goal and aspiration that experience of homelessness should be rare, brief, and one time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard the final discussion of The Housing Continuum, Building a Vibrant Community, the event was presented by Alaska Common Ground and was recorded at the Anchorage Museum on April 1st. We had production help from Chris Bydelic. You can find video of the entire program and speaker slides at akcommonground.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org.